You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. If you have your Bible, I would love for you to open up to Genesis chapter 9. And, uh, and uh, yeah, as, as you're turning there, we are in the middle of, um, of, of a message series uh, on the book of Genesis. Genesis is 50 chapters long, so I divided it into kind of four different themes, and this is, the, this is actually the beginning of the third theme called rescue, the, the theme of rescue. Um, the first was creation, the second was fall, and the third was rescue. And rescue, the theme of rescue is really brought to us and, and carried out to us through the narrative, through the biography of, of, of Noah. Uh, and, and so it's three chapters long, chapters six, uh, seven, and eight, and it kind of lands to define the relationship between God and man in the ninth chapter of Genesis in what's called the Noahic Covenant. And so uh, a term that, um, that every couple needs to understand uh, before they get into relationship, even during relationship, through relational seasons and trials, is the term defining the relationship. Anybody know what defining the relationship is? Somebody goes, call this a DTR. Uh, I went to a mission trip one time, and you know, in Christians, if you've got a 300 college kids at the beach, you're going to get some marriages. I mean, there's people literally getting married off of this thing, showing up probably to find a spouse, finding the spouse and worshiping Jesus too, but also coming away with a husband or a wife. And so they just knew, like they had to have rules. You had to have rules. You know, you don't have guys and girls in the same room at the same time. And you, um, you know, you have to have a curfew and you have to have a job and these sorts of things. Because it's just, you know, college students were passionate about Jesus and other passionate, passionate about other things as well. And so uh, they had a actual swing it was on the front porch where uh, it was a white swing and they called it the DTR swing. And so they said, you know, if you and so-and-so are kind of looking at each other more than, than usual during the service time or talking to each other or thinking about each other, you should go to the DTR swing is what they tell you and make sure you define the relationship because the last thing you want to do, especially if you're a guy, is get in the relationship and not understand what the other person is thinking about in terms of what the definition they're saying. How much are we going to text? You know, you don't think you have rules about this, but you do have rules about this, right? Because you don't find out the rule's broken until it's broken and it's three, four days and you didn't get a text message and you're going, now hang on, we're not in a four day without text kind of relationship. I mean, I defined it that way. I don't know if you did, but I'm on board. You need to get on board with this because we don't go four days in this relationship because that's how it's defined. I didn't tell you that, but that's what it is. So we're, we're constantly, right, defining the relationship. Is, is he going to pay? Is she going to pay? Are we going to split the check? Is this a casual relationship? Is, is, if, if you have some news, am I going to find out from your best friend that she knows the news before you told me? If I tell you, are you going to tell other people? I need to know what the defining of the relationship is. And typically, we don't find out that we've undefined or redefined the relationship until it's too late. And if we think about it, really, relationships and defining relationship is, is extended to all kinds of, of, of interactions, right? So I mean, it work exactly, right? The organization chart is to define the relationship relationship between the people above you, beside you, below you, so you know exactly who you should be reporting to and who you need to listen to and who you should be asking questions of. And if there's information that you have you need to communicate, you need to communicate it through the right channels of the organizational chart. And everybody knows if you don't have a good org chart, there's a lot of wasted energy and a lot of stress, right? So we, we, we are defining continually the relationships. From the minute we meet each other, it is what can I expect of you and what can you expect of me? What can I depend on you for, and, and what can you depend on? I mean, we don't sit down and have a DTR swing, but we're constantly, and at least in our mind, defining what kinds of relationships we have all around us, how safe people are, what we can trust them for, uh, what they like, what they don't like, what kind of humor is going to fly with them, what's not going to fly with them, what you, can, uh, what you can bring to them as a celebration and what they're going to celebrate and not celebrate. We have these informal relationships, and healthy relationships are actually constantly and continually being defined. 
This is why when you go home for Thanksgiving, your parents uh, still treat you like they're nine because they're still in the old definition, and y'all didn't think about how to redefine that relationship, and that's, that's the tricky thing. So uh, in, in Genesis chapter 9, you have the first um, official covenant between God and man. If you look at the screen, the, the theme of the message today is about covenant. Covenant is just a, a, a religious way or, or a spiritual way of really defining the relationship between God and man. God always has uh, the same heart, the same desire, the same passion towards all of his children and towards all of his churches. Um, and, and that's not going to change whether or not we know his heart for us or not. He is who he is. His heart is who, who his heart is. He, his thoughts are his thoughts. And it's not like we're going to change him by our attitude or by actions. He is sort of towards us in a, in a kind of uncompromising way. But the grace, the mercy of the covenant is that his desire is to not just have a heart towards us that desires a relationship, but to make clear and to define what the relationship is. And so many of us in our Christian background, our religious background, sort of have an understanding that uh, somebody somewhere, somewhere along the line told us, like, God wants to have a personal relationship with you. He wants to have a relationship with his church. He wants to have a relationship with the world. And beyond that, it sort of gets a little bit fuzzy, kind of like what happens before the DTR swing. Um, but really what we're saying by that, if we're talking biblically, is we're talking about he wants to have a covenant with you. He wants to have a certain kind of relationship that's defined a very certain kind of way. Now, in relationships horizontally with friends next to us and our parents even, healthy relationships are defined both ways. Like we're working on how we're going to organize the terms of the relationship and hopefully everybody in a, in, a, in a healthy kind of relationship is defining it and making their pro- proactive decisions. But with God, God is defining the relationship. And this is the terms by which he is desiring relationship. And we can trust that when he just defines and decides the way the relationship is, that's the best possible way we can respond to him. And so uh, we'll pick up in, 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 um, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, and uh, actually, excuse me, excuse me, we got to back up to 8, and it goes and swings into to, to 9, uh, verse 1. And so actually, if you go back to 8, I mis- misdirected you earlier. We're going to read a lot of passages here, as you can kind of see, but I'm not going to like kind of stop. The story kind of tells itself. And, and really what we're after here is kind of, what is the relationship that God is establishing with Noah on the earth, and really all of humanity? What is the kind of covenant relationship? Because the truth is, is that covenants don't expire, they're just fulfilled by Jesus. And there are theologies that sort of tell you God changes his mind. He kind of sends this theology and that covenant and this dispensation and so forth. And, and that's actually not, not accurate. It's, it's becoming, you know, less accepted, I guess, in most theological circles. The truth is, is that God has a single covenant. He desires to be with his people, his covenant people. And he's expressing that in different ways. Uh, uh, at least an uh, analogy that worked for me, um, it might work for you, is if you picture a guy in the 1900s whose father promised him a, cor- a horse and buggy, uh, and, and he imagines the kind of seats that it's going to have and the horse that's going to pull and, and the cart and all that kind of thing. Um, when that guy grows up into his 21st birthday or whatever, and he gets a Model T, he's not going to be upset at the delivery on that promise. And so when we think of Jesus, it's not that he, he, uh, he, he expires the old covenant. It's that he fulfills it completely because the car is going to get you from A to B way faster than any horse could. And it's going to be way cooler on the inside with air conditioning than any leather seats you get in a horse and buggy. But it, just at that point in time in the 1900s, they wouldn't be able to conceive of exactly what a car was. So he promised them a relationship, or promised them in this case, a car in the metaphor uh, that they could understand. So this is the, this is the way that the relationship uh, kind of builds up in, starting in chapter 8. Uh, it says, whoop, let me get ahead of myself in the iPad here. It says, um, it says that God remembered Noah. And that word actually is used several times in the Bible regarding covenant with Abraham. Uh, remember is just a key word in the Bible that means God is responding to the promise. He's responding to who he said he was going to be to the person that they're talking about. And he's remembering Noah, the, the conversation that he had. 
And it says, he remembers also all the wild animals and livestock that were in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth. And then it says, and the waters receded. In verse two, the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. And it says, the water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Verse 5, the waters continued to recede until the 10th month, and on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. So if you've been following along within the book of Genesis, uh, you know, it's almost like God um, chooses certain words to begin the the narrative with, and then as you work through the narrative, he continues on those themes. He's not kind of picking up old words and then, you know, throwing them away and then picking up new words again. The words wind and animals and the theme of blessing and the theme of curse and chaos, those things that we have studied have been threads that, that bind the whole entire narrative together. And so really, what, when, when you see this word uh, wind, for example, uh, the English doesn't do it justice because wind is ruah. And in Genesis 1, where it says the spirit hovered over the, uh, the, 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 the waters of the deep, that's the exact word uh, that Genesis 1 uses for spirit, Genesis 8 uses for wind. And so what you actually have here, and we've been talking about the kind of... Um, design patterns throughout the Bible from Genesis 1 to 2 and 3 continue to tell the same story. What, what essentially the scripture is getting at here is that in the same way in Genesis 1 that God hovered over the waters of the deep and spoke order into chaos, uh, that in Genesis uh, 8, the same exact thing is happening in the new creation that he's forming. And so in the same way that he breathed the water to separate from the land, he is breathing the water to separate from the land in Genesis chapter 9. So what is he saying? It's, it, he's doing a new beginning, a new uh, in the beginning uh, segment in the episode here. He is, he is breathing his spirit again onto the earth and where it had receded back into chaos, where the waters of the deep had covered over all the earth based on the curse and based on the spiral of sin and corruption in the earth. Now he is doing a, 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 a similar mechanism. He is doing the same thing to create a new creation, a new beginning. It's a new in the beginning moment. And so then from that, you know, uh, platform, we can kind of see the same patterns happen again. For example, the water receded from the earth is the same thing that happened on day uh, three of Genesis 1. At the end of the 150 days, the water goes down. So what you should be seeing as I read on through the passage is just basically the water is receding, and that's not a too, too complicated of an image to imagine. But we should connect that image of the waters receding and revealing the mountains to the same exact kind of images that we saw in Genesis 1. What is he doing? He is, he is not, um, he's not throwing away his old plan. He's not throwing away his old blessing. He's not, he's not changing directions with the vision that he has for the earth and for the humans. He is, he is starting a new beginning on the old thing that he is doing. And then it says in verse 6, uh, After 40 days Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up on the earth. And then he sent a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water all over the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah, uh, excuse me, then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again. But this time he did not return to him. So this uh, segment of scripture, uh, instead of focusing on the words, I wanted to take a look at the numbers. Um, uh, my good friend Bob came up to me and uh, gave me a new vocab word uh, that Bible scholars, I think, 
talk about a lot. And I was like, oh, yeah, that is what, what that means. He talked about uh, a chiastic structure, which is kind of in the book of Ruth and other parts of the Bible, where basically um, numbers will build upwards in a succession, like 7 to 40 to 150, and then they will go downwards. And that's kind of what's going on is the numbers are kind of illustrating the picture of the waters receding. And the numbers are significant, and here's why. Because the numbers are exactly uh, what God promised would happen um, as the timeline progresses, uh, as God had promised before the timeline began. And, and, and so that's important. So, so for example, uh, the 150 days, which two of those would make up kind of the year structure, um, are exactly as God promised to Noah ahead of time. And so, so what that's saying kind of to us, and, and it's showing more than telling, is that the, the length of the flood and the duration of the flood and when the flood started and when the flood stopped was not based on the cumulus clouds in the sky or Mother Nature or the kind of patterns of, you know, ecological, whatever it is, uh, that makes things rain. It was based on God's word. Like, that's what it's saying. It's, it's, it's showing that. It's, it's demanding to say, look, the flood lasted as long as God wanted the flood to last. And so, therefore, the terms of the flood and the definition of the flood are in God's hands, in his heart, in his mind, and not in the hands of man or in the hands of man's actions. It was already predetermined exactly what God was going to do. And similarly, the 40 days and the 40 nights, which we talked about, had mirrored with the Israelite journey and the testing of Jesus in the wilderness. It's saying that this thing did not last because the cumulus cloud wanted to go for 48, 40 days and 40 nights. It lasted because God desired to test Noah. And the engine of the story is about the relationship between God and Noah. And so now Noah is in this pattern of, of, of waiting out the 40 days, which is now over with, which was God was telling it was going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights, and then he was going to have to wait for 40 days and 40 nights. And, and, so, and so then he starts sending out these birds. And so again, the birds are like Genesis uh, 5, right? And so he's, the birds of the sky are populating the sky, and he's sending these things out to go and find plants. Because the plants would show you that there was land, and land would show you that God's providential design to start a new beginning actually happened, his, his words coming true. So he sends the bird out. He waits seven days. Seven means perfect. Seven, seven would, be God, would, be, would be Noah's prayer um, is, is will this seven-day uh, scheme uh, find its culmination? In the same way as you rested in Genesis 2 on the seventh day and called the day holy, on this seventh day, as I send out this bird, will it return to me with the rest of the land? Will it return to me and, 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 and claim to me and my boat and to this world that God has, has established his purposes. As the same way as in Genesis 7, God declared the, 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 the creation complete and done and holy. Noah is sending out a prayer. He's sending out a bird. And he's saying, if this bird will return to me and bring back a leaf, bring back proof that land has come, it's not just that, that the good news that land is here, it's the good news that God's promises are true and that God is always faithful to fulfill what he says. If he starts something on day one, he's gonna finish it in day seven. And he's going to complete his, his rest. And so, so what you have is a, is, a, is a new spiritual reality in an old geographic place. I'll say that again. What Noah has found and what we're seeing as the reader with the water receding down off the mountains is that, is that God is introducing a new in the beginning moment. He's introducing a new spiritual reality in an old geographic space. That's why they named it Mount Ararat. So you knew that it was the same mountain, but it was a different spiritual dynamic. And that's important for even for our eschatology as we think about, are we going up there? Is this place burning up? And, and the, the whole plan was not to get rid of the old thing. It's to bring a new creation right in the middle of the old thing. And then it's the, it's the same physical location with a different spiritual reality. I wonder if you've ever experienced that before. I, I went two tenures in teaching. I, I worked for, for like six years or five years, I think. I taught at Southside High School in White, Whitehorse Road and then went into ministry for a while. And then after that came back. 
And it's like the T.S. Eliot quote. Sometimes when you come back to the old place, it's the same place. I literally taught in the same room. I had that whiteboard. I remember hanging it when I was 22 or whatever and had the same projector and, and some of the same teachers. And the, I, I had the lesson plans. The rows were the same. Mount Ararat, metaphorically, was all there. But I was a different person. I had been through some things. I looked at it with new spiritual eyes. And I think that's what the passage is inviting us to see is that he didn't molecularly changed the things in the earth. No, he changed the image bearer that was seeing the things and it was reflecting differently. And the blessing is going to get redefined and redesigned. And, and so that's what we're starting to see here. All right, continuing on. It says, by the first day of the first month of the 601st year, the water had dried up on the earth. God's promises were true. He brought back, the, 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 the dove brought back life. There shouldn't have been life. There, should, there, there shouldn't have been life. If God is just and God is perfect and God is good and man is evil and sinful and corrupt and wicked in all of his ways, then, then they shouldn't have been able to send out a dove because evil will always create more evil, right? And fire will always add to fire and chaos will always add to chaos. I mean, we shouldn't have had a leaf come back. But something, something's happened. The promise has, has come true. And so, so what, what's going on is, is that the writer is telling you that on the first day of the first month of the first 601st year of, of Noah is, is, is that this would have in the lexicon of the Jews, popped off the page to say, this is, a, this is a new Rosh Hashanah. This is a new year that's happening. And as a matter of fact, it goes on to say, uh, the water dries up from the earth, and it says that Noah removes the covering of the ark. He removes the covering of the ark. Every Rosh Hashanah, every new year in the Jewish calendar, uh, the temple system was going to get reset up. The, the tabernacle was going to get reset for the year. The old year would kind of pass away and the new year was going to begin and they would reset the tabernacle in just the right way as it was prescribed in Exodus. And one of the things was to cover the tent, not uncover it, but the writer's making a wink and a nod here to say, this is a new year. That's what, that's what God told Moses the first day they got out of Egypt is that this is a new time for you, Moses. This is what he wanted to tell you is that is that the old time that you worked at Southside, the old way, those old kids and the way that you taught and the way that you, your fears and your anxieties and the, and, the, and the discouragements you have, that's not bearing on you anymore. And so Moses, when you think about the way you're gonna act in the wilderness, don't act the way you did in, in, in Egypt because you're not there anymore. It's a new space. It's a new year. It's a new spiritual reality. You're not gonna be enslaved anymore. You're not gonna be prohibited from Sabbath anymore. You don't need to act like them and, and, and worship false gods and idols. You don't need to have uh, you know, sexual uh, um, uh, perver perversion the way that the Egyptians do. You, you need to think of this thing with a new year, with a new uh, ideal. And, and that's what's going on. It's a, it's a new year. And so time even is not defined by, by place and space. It's actually defined by the word of God, according to the Jewish mindset. It's, it's that God has decided to start a new thing. And God can start a new thing any moment of the day, not just in the mercy's new in the morning. We, we, sometimes we wake up in the morning and think, oh, mercy's only coming tomorrow. It can happen in every minute. There's a mercy for every minute and every moment and every, every circumstance, there's an opportunity for a new thing. And that's exactly what God is saying is that, is that I define when the calendar turns. My story, your faith according to my grace is what's gonna determine the metronome of what's happening here. So verse 15, it says, and God said to Noah, come out of the ark. And there it is. I mean, he didn't build the ark, get on the ark, wait up, wait on the ark for the rain to recede or get off the ark except for the command of God. And that's what we wanted to make sure to impress last week is this thing is not mobilized by the rain or the water or the flood. It's mobilized by God's voice and Noah's response. That's exactly how this new creation is coming about. In the old creation, God spoke and it happened. In the new creation, God spoke and people will respond in faith or they won't. 
but he's making it very clear that any creation, any new creation that's ever going to come out of us is never going to happen without the, 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 the fuel of faith, without the, the vehicle of faith. It's never going to move forward except for faith. That's how creation is going to happen. Hope, life, encouragement, um, uh, freedom, uh, financial you know, uh, freedom from debt, um, relational health. It, it's never going to happen from principles. It's only going to happen from the word of the Lord. It's only going to happen from short accounts with God. It's only going to happen from faith and obedience, steps after steps after steps, according to the voice. This is the, this is the paradigm by which he's saying it's not, it's not the weather and it's not the calendar that drives the story. It's faith. And it's, and it's how will we respond to what God is saying. If God says it's this season and even the calendar says it's that season, we're listening to God, we're not listening to the calendar. We're not listening to others in the world and the politics to decide what time it is. We're asking God what time it is, what season it is. Jesus says that even the sailors know what time it is based on you know, the sky and the, and the sunset and all that kind of thing. How much more should you know what God is saying in the season that you're in? This is what he's saying. The seasons aren't determined by the fall of the leaves of the snow. It's determined by the, by the Lord's voice. And so here they come out of the ark. This is a day, uh, what, day five reboot. Day, yeah, day five reboot and six because the family's coming out. We had the, we had the heavens that are established and the flood stops and the mountains begin to come out and the birds sent out and the leaf comes back and now here are the people and the animals on the word of the Lord, not on need or survival uh, or the survival of the fittest, but on the word of God. The people that respond to the word of God are finding life in a new creation. And then it says in verse 18, so Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his son's wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark one kind after another. And then it says, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed bird offerings on this. Um, I, I don't know if I'm reading too far into the narrative. I'm just thinking of a guy who's like out in the rain forever in the elements, not knowing he's gonna live, just on a boat, maybe getting nauseous. I, don't, I, I, I picture this guy. It reminds me of the movie at the end of Captain Phillips. Have you seen that? Remember, that's the guy with the Sumerian pirate who's like, I'm the captain now. And uh, it's, it's got Tom Hanks in it. You don't need to know what it is. But essentially, he goes through a really traumatic event where his, uh, his boat gets taken over by these pirates. It's a current modern-day story setting kind of thing. And uh, they barely make it. They barely survive. And, and at the end of it, they, they have him in this triage unit, and they're checking him out, and it's this cinematic thing where everything's quiet, and there's not a lot of lines in it, but you're just watching Tom Hanks' face. And he just, he just like, kind of starts shaking after all this trauma happens. And it's a real thing. It's like, a, it's like it's, it's trauma. It's crisis. It's, it's a shock. Like, literally, you can say, I'm shocked because... Somebody gave me a great Christmas present, but then that's like a hyperbole of what really shocked is. Like shocked is this thing that can happen to the human psyche there. You just break down because you've just been so intensely under stress and duress for so long. You didn't even know the feelings that you had. And you didn't know all the, all the hurt and the pain that you had because you had to just be strong. And then when, when the storm clears and when you're out of the pirate boat, so to speak, it just kind of all breaks down. And I just, I picture Noah just covered in, in dirt and soil and blood, having killed all these animals and just his family coming around him, just breaking down at this altar. And and it reminds me of, of being in ministry and, and doing youth ministry and adult ministry. Um, what can happen through life in worship settings when we come to the altar, Lord, after, after rocky seasons of life? Have you ever experienced this before? When, when you sing the old song in middle school, you know, Lord, I lift your name on high. I'm old now, so that's what we used to sing. I don't know how he loves us, you know. You sing these songs and you're professing this faith. I mean, I came to Jesus when I was 15, and I said, I'll, just, I'll follow you, God. And I think it just meant that I knew I needed something. I knew I wasn't enough. I knew that the adults and the authorities, even in my life, were imperfect, and I needed something to follow. And so all I knew is just to say yes to what I knew, and I followed Jesus. And I said, I'll follow you. And 
the high school following lead to college and college lead to marriage and marriage leads to job and da, 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 and I was I kind of you carry out your story and 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 those those altars those songs that you sing that are 10 years old now they they remind you of the old thing but they 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 prophesy a new spiritual reality in the moment you sing them after the battle and after the storm have you ever experienced this before where the song that you that you were praying about you didn't know what the words meant yet and you started singing them because everybody else was singing them and they felt like they resonated in your spirit and God was putting in your heart something you didn't even understand what was happening. He's putting the, the horse and buggy that you didn't know what the, what the real Model T was gonna be like and it was good that he did and he did it through faith. He told Noah ahead of time what was gonna happen but, and Noah calculated in his head, I guess, and counted the cost but he wouldn't know how hard it was, how hard it is to raise kids, how hard it is to work through you know, drama and relationships, how hard it is to lose a spouse, how hard it is to lose a baby. You're not signing up for that when you get married at 21. I don't care how many premarital counseling sessions you have. You have no idea what you're saying yes to. This is, I think, what the altar is. The altar doesn't give substance or merit to the relationship, but it definitely gives it definition. And it gives us an opportunity. I think even in times of worship 20 minutes ago when we were gathered, that's, that's why we gather and sing is to not just not stick out or make sure I raise my hands enough. It's, it's, it's to bring an offering to God that's real and, and to live lives in such a way that when we come on Sunday, like we have something to bring and we realize how far he's taken us and we realize what we need to say and what we want to say. And sometimes the words on the screen help us do that. And sometimes we don't need the words on the screen. We just want to scream. We just want to shout. We want to cry. We want to respond. We want to reflect. We want to repent. And we do our best, I guess, in, in this place to try and cultivate an environment of worship. But ultimately, the worship is going to happen in your heart or it's not. And that's what this altar is. It's, it's a smoking fire pot. It's a response that says, is pleasing to the Lord. And actually, out of all the passages in this passage, we probably ought to fixate on that one the most because, I mean, in a world of chaos, and he's going to say that only wickedness abounds from the heart of humans, that something is happening on earth that actually pleases God. I mean, that's a difference between, like, I put up with what's going on down here or I'll make amends for what things is going on, but to actually be happy about what's happening, I mean, this is, we should pay attention to what this is, the one that created us, the one that we left, the one we offended, the one we sinned against, the one who's pursuing us. He's saying he's pleased by something. Is it the smoke or is it something different? So he says he offers this, this offering. And then I love it. It says, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. And it doesn't even say that God said this to the people. It says that God's heart was feeling this. Like that's the intent of the Holy Spirit in these pages is to express. He's not just trying to share his plans. He's trying to share his heart. He's trying to share his insides. He's trying to share his intentions, his, his, his dreams, his vision. He wants to share everything he has with humanity. And so, so it, it takes the time to say, it's not just that he shared his mind. He shared his heart with humanity. I, I want you to know my heart. Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all, all creature as I have done. And here we get into the James Taylor part of the verse, verse 22. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Some baby boomer in here was like, winter, spring, summer, or fall. I was, I mean, I personally was. I'm, maybe I'm just the, the dork in the room here. But he's, he's saying that as the seasons turn, as the seasons turn, there will be more seasons and there'll be more seasons according to the word of the Lord. I mean, if he wanted to end the seasons, he certainly could. If he could send a flood, he could send it. If he wanted to, I don't know, drown us in leaves, I guess I suppose he could based on his word. He's saying, it's not up to you, it's up to me. And I'm gonna define, I'm gonna find the sands of time and I'm saying there's more seasons to come. I'm saying that, that I, I locked up, 
I locked up the floodgates of heaven according to, to my design, and I'm not going to let them ever go again. And it says right there, right, in, right, right connected to that promise that he already knows the hearts of men. He already knows that there's going to be war and poverty. He knows there's going to be sexual abuse and parental neglect. He knows that there's going to be poverty and injustice. He, he knows. But there's something pleasing to him in this, in this place. There's, there's some hope to him. There's some green leaf to him. There's, there's something in the effect of his faithfulness in the earth that he is going to endure these things. It said in Genesis 6, the reason he sent the flood is because he was grieved. But, but Genesis 9 is telling us that, or Genesis, Genesis 8 at least, is telling us that the pleasing aroma that comes up into his nostrils is enough that he would forego the flood and that he would, that he would find a pleasing aroma even in the midst of the chaos and the, and the evil that's gonna come about from all the chapters of this Bible and all the chapters of our life. And so for my second reference of movies today, I will quote The Notebook. And the picture that comes to mind, it's just an easy picture, is, it, you know, I think, you know, the old guy at the end, and if you haven't seen it, it's not my fault. You should have already seen it. Uh, but, you know, she, he, the, the whole idea is it's a, it's a picture of, of, of a love relationship, and that's very much what one of the ways that God tries to explain his heart towards his people and towards the world. And so the picture is that the guy reads the journal back, the love story back to his wife in the hopes that it would help her to remember the story and to remember him because she so often forgets it. And that's precisely what this, this poem is about. It's the seasons of time will absolutely carry in them the pangs of parental heartbreak towards his children. But for the moments of worship that we would come into a place like this on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. and lift our hands and express our, our due gratitude and express our, our real satisfaction in him and our longing for him and our insufficiency without him or whatever it is, every season requires a worship and requires a song. And, and so it's like that is somehow attractive enough for him that he's, he's, he's holding off the doors. He's holding back the floodgates. Something to keep in mind, this is a universal covenant. There's different kinds of covenants, different kinds of relationships. Not all covenants are between God and man. There's divine and, and, and human covenants. Like I can make a covenant with my neighbor, a contract with my neighbor. I can, you know, the Old Testament, different tribes would make con contracts with each other or covenants with each other. That doesn't make it magical or special. If it's a divine covenant, though, we should pay attention, which marriage is a divine covenant. Secondly, it can be conditional or unconditional. For example, 2 Chronicles 7.14 is not a universal covenant. So if my people will turn and uh, repent of their sins and, and you know, repent of their, their wicked ways, then it's not going to heal the land of the United States because it's not a covenant to the United States. It's a covenant to Israel. So not all covenants are universal. This one is. And not all covenants are unconditional. Some of the times it's like, if you do this and then I'll do this, like Second Chronicles. This one's not. This one is unconditional. It is universal. It is with all men. It is with all women, it's all people. I will never flood the earth again because I want you to have time. I want you to have time to respond. I want you to have time to know me. I want you to have time multiple times, multiple continual times to feel my grace and hear my grace. I want you to have time. I, I, I wanna prepare, I wanna create a space where you can have time to come to Noah's altar. It was that pleasing to me and that powerful for Noah that I'm gonna give you time that you might come to his altar. I need to fly through the rest of the, of the, of the covenants, but that's the heartbeat, I think, of this message. I just need to, I, I want to read the rest of it to make sure we see the context. Verse uh, seven, uh, no, excuse me, excuse me. We're going back, back, to, back to verse nine, and I'm going to move through. This is exactly where the covenant is in the beginning of chapter nine. So that was all eight, and this is chapter nine. So it says that God blesses Noah and his son, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Has God started a new plan? No. He has created a new spiritual reality to execute the plan he's always had. 
Verse two, the fear and dread of you will fall on the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea, they are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you just as I gave you uh, the green plants. I now give you everything. Somebody say amen if you love barbecue. That is just what happened just there with all, with all people. He is giving a, a concession of protection. There's gonna be two, or provision. There's two different um, kind of clauses of this covenant and it is protection and provision. And he's giving provision that, that you can procure food and he wants to bless the humans just like he put uh, skins over uh, Adam to cover his shame and he put a mark on Cain as a provision for his safety and his protection. Now with Noah, he's doing the same thing. He's extending a procurement of food, an ability for you to uh, not buy. He wants more time. He wants more time with you and for you. He wants to have more time uh, before, before the second coming, before his, his return. All right, it says uh, next. Gosh, there's so much text here. I'm getting lost. Um, be fruitful. Yeah, uh, it says, but you must not eat meat that has its blood still in it. And for you, the lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. So this is the protection clause that, um, actually it goes on, let me read the next one, the little poem that justifies that. Because, verse six, whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God, God has created mankind. So this is the protection clause. What it's saying is that um, he is instituting capital punishment within, within the earth. He is, he is in, empowering and entrusting Noah and the humans to um, manage justice in the earth. Now, by theory, that might be a great idea, but as you can see, that could also get wonky. Um, in terms of how and who holds power and executes that justice. But what we're seeing here is God is instituting a kind of a law, a kind of government to rule themselves, amongst themselves, even in the middle of sin, even in the middle of the problem, that they have the ability to decide and discern the difference between right and wrong and, and execute justice and government, to create order in the chaos. And, and, and so... And so, so the lifeblood is, is super, super important. First of all, for the animals, it says you're going to drain out the lifeblood. And it's almost like, almost like saying a prayer before the meal is to remember, look, like this life didn't come from this animal really or from me, that life comes from God. And so the dumping of the blood was the reminder that God is provisional and he's, he's providing for us. Also in terms of the protection though, you could almost see it like a, a, a balance system, a, a kind of safety valve. If you remember, um, the flood was a lot like a pendulum where it began to swing so far out of control because there was no justice on the earth and there was no boundaries or borders as to what people could do and there was no natural consequences. And so the institution of government was given, not to the church, but to the world to, to keep it within its parameters, to essentially make functional the promise that there would never be a flood because the counts would be kept shorter and that the massacres and the chaos wouldn't get as out of hand and as, as far sweeping as it did in Genesis 5 and 6 and so forth. So that's some of the covenant that goes on. And then he says this, verse seven, as for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply in the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. This is unconditional. It is universal. There's nothing that Noah could have done to screw it up. There's nothing that Noah could do to change it. This is simply how God is saying, I'm going to relate to you in this relationship. I want you to have time. I want you to have seasons. I want you to have an opportunity to make more altars, to come to the altar quicker. Verse 10, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on the earth, I established my covenant with you. Never again will, I be, will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood destroying the earth. Verse 12, and God said, this is a sign. Every covenant had a sign. Abraham had circumcision. Christ has the Eucharist, which we'll take today. 
uh, Noah has a rainbow, right? This is the sign to all humanity because it doesn't take you to be in church to see what a rainbow is. That's precisely what God is reminding is that he has held back the floodgates so that there would be seasons, so there'd be time to repent. Verse 13, so I've sent my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the, in the sky, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the little creatures of every kind. Ne- never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all, the, all life. Verse 16, whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. There it is, chapter nine. It, 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 it kind of sandwiches and, and partitions off the rescue narrative uh, that God wants to prototype. There's gonna be a lot more rescue narratives all the way throughout scripture, but what he's essentially saying with, the, with this covenant is that everything you need to know about what it means to have a kind of right relationship, to be righteous, upright in the earth, to walk with God, all the words and the superlatives that came along with Noah's name, to follow the commands, they're all within that, that picture. And there's gonna be you know, elaboration of that and, and betas and, and, and ongoing kinds of ways that we can see what that prototype relationship is supposed to look like. But he's saying at its essence, it's a guy with a boat and a God that is calling him. That's what it's saying. This is the kind of relationship, and he, and he, and he couples it all off, and he says, I, I'm making this covenant promise with you. I will no longer be absentee or ambivalent from this world. I will be involved. I will institute my justice in this place, and I will create seasons of time that you might turn to repent. Now, the, the horse and carriage turns, and it grows, and it gets more and more enunciated over time, and we know more specifically about what exactly that means, but at its core, he's trying to say, this is the most simple, deductive way to explain what I want with you. I want an altar. I want faith. I want you to find my grace. I want you to trust me in the season. I want you to get on the boat. I want you to stay on the boat. I want you to, I want you to look to my word and not to the seasons or to the waves or, the, or any. I define the times of your life. I want you to look to me and I will seal you into that ark. It's not your locks that keep you safe. It's not your, your plans that keep you safe, your politics. It's only by the spirit of God that you're being safe. I'm making a new creation. The only one that will experience will be the one that follows my voice that doesn't get off the boat because the flood went down, but gets off the boat because God commands him to get off the boat. This is what I want you to know about the alphabet of faith. It's Noah's life. I want you to understand it. I want you to be very clear about this picture. So this is my sermon in a sentence. Consider how you might respond to that, that invitation, that kind of covenant, because we still are under that covenant. I mean, Christ has fulfilled it in a certain way, but ultimately it still has not flooded yet. And God's still heart... God's heart is still that through winter, spring, summer, or fall, that people would turn. Just a short statement to help, you, to, to help us think. I just wrote that every season turns, think about this, so that every person might turn to God. That's what today is about. Like we're living today, we're alive today, and not in heaven, not so that we can be as happy as we can be or rich as we can be or whatever it is that we're trying to do. We're, we are here ultimately, we have another day and another winter and another Christmas, here comes 2020, here comes another season. The reason why there's more seasons, if Noah were to tell us, is not because we're lucky or because the earth hasn't you know, wasted away its, uh, what's that thing called? Uh, I can't, global warming or whatever, you know, some thin layer of, of, of abstract you know, science, no, because God wants it to. And God is, is propelling the seasons forward. He is the author of the season. He is the finer of the season. He he has brought the season for his purposes, not yours or mine. And the season exists that we might turn to him, that we might have time, that we'd read his story to us one more time, that we might remember it and return to him. We have another season so we can come here and give altars. We could could bring a, a pleasing aroma. That's why it's here. If it wasn't for that, if it wasn't for the fact that people could respond in faith to his grace, 
then we'd be underwater. But we're not underwater. And the reason why, or Peter, 1 Peter says that some people will forget and will think that the reason why is because we're lucky or because we're a floating ball of gas somewhere out in the stratosphere and it's all luck and chance. And that's not what the scripture says. It says that the reason why we're not underwater is because he, hasn't, he doesn't want us underwater. Because he wants us close to him. Because he wants us near him. He wants, he wants people to turn. He wants all to turn. And we're here with that intercessory weight that today exists for somebody to turn, for me and you to turn. And that's what Second Peter exactly, sorry, not first, but Second Peter would tell us is don't grow ignorant, eating and drinking and getting married and thinking that that's all that there is. The seasons exist for our pleasure and happiness. They exist for faith that others might find life, that others might find birds sent out returning green leaves that shouldn't have ever returned. And that's what we're here for. That's what the altar is about. This is the, this is the framework of, of, of what it is that we're doing. And so the intentional question you might consider, do I live aware of the mercy of time? Do I live aware of the fact that every moment's mercy? It's, it's, we shouldn't have, even just to be alive today is mercy. Even just to not be, not, you know, not, not be under, under a flood of chaos is, is, is mercy today. That we might have seasons, winter and spring and summer and fall, that, that some might turn to him. Some of you guys, I don't look him up on Wikipedia. He's awesome. This guy, uh, Reinhard Bonnke, is this uh, evangelist guy. I saw him one time at a Jesus Culture conference. He just like was fiery, old 75-year-old guy, man. Fiery. And, um, and uh, he was kind of a, a healing evangelist guy, and, and he would go mainly to Africa. And, um, and uh, I was looking at his Wikipedia page, and it was cool. He, his ministry oversaw, it says on the Wikipedia page, 79 million salvations. 79 million people. Uh, at some of his crusades that were brought here, were, were able to see spiritually a new kind of year, a new era. They were able to see a new reality in the same place, with the same jobs, but see a life. That he's talking, 79 million people. And I just thought, isn't that crazy? Because on his deathbed, at, whatever, two days ago, whenever he passed away in the middle of the night, he was 79 years old. I mean, I'm not going to canonize the thing and say it's from the Bible, but I'm, it's pretty interesting that God measures time differently than us. And that every, every year you could count a million people that were led to Jesus because of his faithfulness, because of, because of his, his yes to God. And that's what it's saying is that we're all opportunity, we all have opportunities to be Noah's and to get on the boat when he asks us and get off when he asks us to do. And that's all that's required of us. That is the deductive nature of the relationship to follow God and trust God, to find grace in God. God is not measuring life by time. He's measuring it by faith steps and altars, one to the next to the next. I'm gonna invite you guys to stand and uh, have the band come forward as we take communion and respond. We don't wanna take communion ever flippantly. The scriptures even instruct us to do so. We wanna take communion with a sober heart, with a walls down um, posture within, within our mind and our heart. And so the table elements today actually represent the best covenant, the new covenant. If you were to do a study of all the covenants throughout time, Noah's covenant and, and Abraham's covenant, covenant and Moses' covenant and, and then ultimately David's covenant in the Old Testament, then none of those covenants ever really fulfilled the intent. They couldn't. Not that he wasn't faithful to fulfill his side of the relationship, but we were never able to fill ours. And what you will find as you read the passages and studying covenantal theology is that ultimately God is not only fulfilling his faithful side of the covenant, but he's fulfilling ours as well. And that as he put Abraham to sleep, as he walked through the pieces of the covenant for his covenant, that, that we are dead in our sins and asleep in our sins when God comes and extends his hand to us. And through Jesus, through faith, just through trusting and obeying what, what, God, what Jesus is saying, trusting that he has made us new, trusting that, 
that Jesus became like us so that we could become like him. That's what this covenant is about. And so he says to his disciples, he says to us that the bread and the cup is not just bread and cup, they're symbols. They're symbols of the, of the broken body and the blood poured out. And essentially what it's saying is that Jesus was broken so that we could be fixed. That Jesus took on our sinfulness and our error and our unfaithfulness in the covenant and he fulfilled his side and ours. And so now we come to just trust. And so wherever you are, I invite you to come to him as Noah did. Because Noah didn't know Jesus' name, but he was responding to him. And he was walking with faith and anybody that's ever walked in faith is responding to Jesus. And so that's the invitation. You don't have to do or be anything really other than just trust and believe that what he says is true about you in this world and so father we come to you in this table we take these elements and and we, we thank you it could have been so much worse it could have been it could have been over but god you have extended the seasons that we might turn to you and so we turn to you now we make the most of this season by turning gather together in prayer and fellowship and we celebrate this we tell each other one another over and over again the story of god that we might turn that we might turn that we might turn thanks again for joining us if you have been encouraged or challenged by this message please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast for more information on our church visit us at www.citylights.cc 